I started last week on the Eightfold Path and um, did Wise View the week before I did, uh, did the Four Noble Truths, but with the Twister. Seeing a bachelor's fourfold task, which is really about embracing our suffering and, and um, really a different different way of looking at the same teachings of the Buddha. And I really, I really like, I really like um, bachelor. But last week, talking about wise view being that uh, you know needing to come into an awareness of what the true nature of being is both understanding the Four Noble Truths, that there is, there is suffering, that we need to really embrace our suffering, to own it, to say, yeah, this is the way it is, and to um, recognize when there isn't suffering, when there isn't discomfort, to recognize when there is cessation of suffering, and to begin to move towards a, a, a life that is the cessation of suffering, of, of dukkha. And... Um, Seeing clearly that uh, life is, uh, everything is impermanent, you know, the three characteristics, that there is this suffering and that there is, uh, uh, life isn't, things are impermanent, everything passes, and that, that things, there's no fixed self, that things aren't personal, we're conditioned beings, we are, we are, um, we are a collection of our experiences and our what we've learned and how we've been talked to and shaped both personally and at a, at a grander level, the, the messages we get through our society. And, um, so to begin to see clearly how we're not, you know, these independent beings with free will, that we're actually shaped by a lot of, a lot of things driving us into uh, a particular, particular way of being and seeing and acting and saying. And the second factor of eight, the Eightfold Path is, is actually one of my favorites. I love, I love intention, wise intention, because it's, it, it's uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi in his book, The Eightfold Path, talks about it as the, the bridge between the, the cognitive understanding of the way things are and the moving into action the rest of the next section of the Eightfold Path, which is sila, integrity, ethical behavior. This bridge between recognizing how things are and then moving towards a way of being so that we support um, uh, support a life that is ethical and doesn't cause harm and is wise and kind and uh, compassionate. And all those things. So, uh, in wise intention, and I love, you know, that I always say it, but in our society, very often it's said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I'm always very happy to say that that's not a Buddhist concept. In fact, I think it's Tan Jeff says the um, road to nirvana is paved with skillful and good and wise intentions. So if we cultivate wise and skillful and good intentions, then we are going to um, uh, end up in a path uh, towards liberation, towards freedom. And again, not going back to Stephen Batchelor, not necessarily um, somewhere down the path nirvana, 
but here and now, being able to be free in this moment, <coughs> right here, right now. Um, so uh, we see um, inside intention there are these three teachings or these three uh, things that we do and or that we want to investigate or practice or hold or look at or cultivate. Renunciation, is that everybody's favorite word? Uh, goodwill and harmlessness. And I really, I, I actually love um, renunciation. Um, well, let, me, let me step back a little, another second. Let me, let me say a couple more introductory remarks before I jump into that. Um, wise view leads to nirvana, and wrong view, wrong intention leads to, uh, can be the road to hell, if we want to take it that way. It's, in, in Buddhism, everything is about intention. It's all about recognizing, having a place, coming from a place of kindness and compassion and moving in a direction of not causing harm. They can have, coming from this place of wise and good and skillful intention can have unintended consequences, but we're moving from this place of non-harming. And then shit happens. But if we come from a place of um, unskillful intentions, we can have beneficial results but we're planting seeds of unskillful and things that aren't healthy and unwise. It's just as when we're moving from a place of good intention, we're planting um, healthy, good seeds so that eventually they will um, bear healthy fruit. Just maybe not this moment, but hopefully down the line. There's also a, a flavor of karma in that, that we, if we move in, because in, karma is about action, so if we move in this direction of karma and wise action, then we will have beneficial results. If nothing more than not having that internal um, churning of, I did the wrong thing, you know? If we come from a place of wise and skillful intention and, and there's unskillful or not um, unintended consequences, we can, I think, more easily take responsibility for our actions. We can be accountable and say, yeah, I did that. Understanding the impact of our actions, but also recognizing that we didn't have an intention to hurt and seeing if we maybe need to cultivate some different actions or maybe we need to clear out some other um, deep conditioning that has us thinking we're behaving well, but maybe we're not behaving wisely. So it's really about disentangling this deep conditioning. We have an intention to move in a way that's wise and skillful and compassionate. Um, and in, uh, let me see, I have this, this quote here. Let me see if it makes sense. Um, Yeah, the Buddha sums up the matter when he says that for a person who holds a wrong view, his deeds, words, plans, and purposes grounded in that view will lead to suffering while for eventually. While for a person who holds right view, his deeds, words, plans, and purposes grounded in that view will lead to happiness. When the intentions are right, the actions will be right. 
And when the intentions are wrong, the actions will be wrong. So really understanding that intention is key. It's paramount teaching inside of Buddhism. Um, so now going back to the what we have to cultivate inside of intention, there's the renunciation, there's goodwill, and then there's um, harmlessness. And renunciation, I always think of it, or I used to, not anymore, but when casually hearing that word, how, what do you think of when you hear the word renunciation? Giving up. Giving up, yeah. Oftentimes with that stoic, I have to give up in order to be a better person. I have to let go of this because they told me I have to. I go back to being raised a Catholic and a little kid in Lent. I did not understanding the meaning of what, you know, letting go and, 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 and going without um, meant, but um, uh, just that giving up. Punishment. Punishment. Yeah, yeah. So it, it has a kind of a, an unpleasant connotation, a negative connotation, but in Buddhism, I love that the, there's like not negative or not good or bad, but pleasant or unpleasant or wise or unwise or skillful or unskillful or beneficial or unbeneficial. Um, renunciation in this realm, in this way, means beginning to clearly see that when we hold on to things, Renunciation is, a, is an antidote to craving and clinging, which is the, the root of our suffering, our, our discomfort. If we, be, we begin to see that renunciation is letting go of those things we cling to, those things we hold on to, it's a way to um, see that when we hang on to these things, when we're attached to these things, we're causing suffering. So it's not a punishment to let go, but it's a path to freedom. It's a path to spaciousness and breathing because when we let go of our clinging, we're no longer trapped by it. We're able to go, ah, there's some freedom. How many of you have ever, you know, had some kind of addiction like smoking? Smoking's a good one where you can, when you finally are able to let go of that, there's a freedom. You no longer have to go stand outside in the rain to smoke. I mean, that was not fun. Or um, when we cling to ideas, of the, when we cling to expectations, you know, that aren't met. Or when we cling to these ideas, my life has to look like this idea I came up with when I was 14 years old. And it doesn't. No. I have to have... The, the, the house and the picket fence or this or the job or the, the whatever. And we suffer so much when it's not like that. We have to, you know, even the simplest ideas, um, think it, how people see us, you know. I have to make sure people see me in a certain way because then I'll be okay. It's all about that then I'll be okay. Um, you know, our craving, we, we abandon our craving, not because it's inherently evil, but because it leads to suffering. And deliverance equals complete eradication of craving. And progress happens when we overcome that craving. 
So we begin to see, this is that discernment, this is that seeing clearly, this is that where we bring wise view into it, seeing it's not about giving up in order to just be a better person and check something off a checklist, but to go, oh, this is why I suffer. Can I let go of that which causes me suffering? No, I, you're, I, I taught out in Palm Springs last week or a couple of weeks ago and I was really excited because somewhere in the middle of my Dharma talk I realized, I go, none of you have heard any of my stories. And I was so excited that no one had heard anything I've ever said before and I could just go blah, 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 and it would all be new to them. But many of you have heard me talk about my sarcasm and how near and dear to me that was because it was such an integral part of who I was. I was so deeply conditioned to that way of being. It was how I navigated in the world. It was a real sense of my identity. And when I realized that it caused harm and I was had to contemplate letting go of it, it was a long process of seeing that it's not about um, me giving something up to be, you know, match a, a checklist. Don't be sarcastic, you know, wise speech, but because it caused suffering. And I would, people would tell me how it hurt them, and then I would, I would suffer around that too. So it, it was just, you know, this, this continuation. And, you know, I was talking the other night, I was talking about this in my Thursday class, and I, I remembered, a, 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 Talking about baseball, there was a guy with a Cleveland shirt on, and I asked him if he was a baseball fan, and he said he was, and I, I felt I offered my condolences because Cleveland lost in the playoffs, and they haven't won a World Series since 1948. So it's been a while. So, um, But I talked about, um, you know, the simple things. We, you know, we think sometimes renunciation are these big, huge things, but we also have to look at them in our little things in life. Like I'm born and raised in New York, so I'm a Yankee fan. And Yankee fans cannot like Boston. It's, it's in our genes. It's just, it's just <laughs> genetic. We just can't like any baseball, any team that comes from Boston. Add that to the fact that I was living with a guy for a few years and he dumped me for a woman from Boston. <laughs> Therefore, I cannot like Boston at all. It's just kind of that thing. And um, so... Uh, it was a few years ago, uh, and it was during the, um, the height of the It Gets Better campaign, because there was a lot of bullying of uh, gay, um, of queer students and, and queer young people, and so there were all these people doing It Gets Better, It Gets Better, and, uh, and a campaign about bullying in general. It was, it was like when it first came to prominence, and I remember there was a video and I had kind of calmed down around this Boston nonsense anyway, but there was a video of a couple of young kids at Yankee Stadium in New York at a baseball game. And I think they had Boston shirts on. They were Boston fans at a Boston game. And there were a bunch of Yankee fans surrounding them and harassing them and haranguing them and just scaring the living daylights out of these kids. And I went, it, it was like an epiphany. It was an insight. And I went, oh, even at my level of silliness around this, um, I hate Boston, that is directly related to what these people were doing and I become part of the problem. If I have any flavor of that, 
it's, it's, it's part of the problem. And so I had to really investigate it and be willing to let go of that. And today, it's like, you know what? There's a whole different level of experience around that. Um, so Boston is currently in the World Series with the Dodgers, and I don't like either team. But I have a lot of friends who like the Dodgers, so I'm, I want them to experience joy, so I'm rooting against the Dodgers. And, you know, the Yankees and the Dodgers play. I'm so sorry this is a baseball game. But um, <laughs> the, Yankees and the, Dodgers, uh, the Yankees and the Red Sox just played a couple of weeks ago, and the Red Sox beat them. And I was, I was like, I'm sad, but it's like there's no – that suffering isn't there anymore like it used to be. You know, that that, uh, that angst, that level of uh, – because I was able to let go. I was able to let go. And, and that sounds, I think it's kind of like a, a silly, mundane example, but that's where our daily suffering is. These little, there are, you know, there's the great sufferings that we experience, the great discomfort, but there's all these little things that are just kind of off, that are just kind of, you know, cause us a little bit of discomfort or we feel like, we're uncomfortable or, or we have that churning in our gut or that clenching of our jaw or that, you know, that tightening of our fists that we walk around um, because we have these expectations, we have these cravings, these desires. And if we can back off of those and let go of them, there's a tremendous amount of freedom. I have this tremendous amount of freedom. No team I rooted for won this year. And I'm like, you know, okay. In fact, there's a teacher up in Berkeley, James Barras, who he talks about that. He, he started studying years ago in the 70s with J Joseph Goldstein. Joseph Goldstein was his first teacher, and Joseph Goldstein is a very, very well-respected teacher um, who, who teaches at back east at uh, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And, and he heard Joseph talking about this type of thing, and James was overcome with the the, the fear that he would no longer care about his basketball team. And, and Joseph said, you'll care, but it won't hurt anymore. You'll care, but it won't hurt. And it reminds me of the, you know, Ajahn Chah and his teacup. The story of Ajahn Chah, who his monks realized that, you know, said, hey, we notice you're using the same teacup every day. You seem to have developed an attachment to it. And he goes, it's already broken. You know, there's that recognition of impermanence then. So there's the breaking of the attachment to whatever our craving is. And, and craving can be a strong word. Suffering can be a strong word. So whatever we have this, this attachment to, can you let go of it? Because that is the intention. That is what this wise intention is. It's about letting go of that breaking the, 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 the holding on to things, really being willing to say, nah. it's fine. Having that sense of equanimity around things. Right now it's like this. Right now it's like this. And not negating the emotions that arise around it. There may be anger, there may be fear, there may be sadness. Absolutely. That's because we are human. And we experience these human emotions that have been um, uh, activated by our situation. So we hold those tenderly. We don't push those away because they show up somewhere else if we do. 
So um, really begin to pay attention. Letting go does not come through brute force, but by understanding our craving, too. Seeing how, oh, I think that if this happens, then that will happen. If I'm this way, then that will happen. Then you'll like me better. Or this prize, I'll get this prize. And what it is, is we're looking out there instead of being, being um, recognizing that that out there is not the means to our happiness. It's the internal experience that's the means to our happiness. Yeah, we, we, I have this line I wrote down. It says, we take what is true over what is pleasant. We're willing to sit with, with the reality over what we want it to be. Here's another. Here's a, here I underlined every single line on this page. So let, me, let me read a little bit of this. You know, this is talking about desire. At the moment desire springs up, it creates in us a sense of lack the pain of want. To, this, to end this pain, we struggle to fulfill the desire. If our, efforts fail, if our effort fails, we experience frustration, disappointment, sometimes despair. But even the pleasure of success is not unqualified. We worry that we might lose the ground we have gained. We feel driven to secure our position, to safeguard our territory, to gain more, to rise higher, to establish tighter controls. The demands of desire seem endless, and each desire demands the eternal. It wants things we get to last forever, but all the objects of desire are impermanent, whether it be wealth, power, position, or other person's separation is inevitable, and the pain that accompanies separation is proportional to the force of attachment. Strong attachment brings much suffering. Little attachment brings little suffering. No attachment brings no suffering. That's that quote of Ajahn Shah. Let go a little, get a little peace. Let go a lot, get a lot of peace. Let go completely, have complete peace. So this desire, this craving, this, this attachment and dukkha are intertwined. Desire and dukkha, they kind of go hand in hand. So if we can let go of the attachment, recognizing that we... We would like to have pleasant things in our life, but letting go of the need for that. It's, it's so freeing, and it's actually fearless. Renunciation is fearlessness. It's a willingness to be with whatever it is, regardless of preference, without preference. We're fearless. We can take life as it comes. It's really powerful. It's really powerful. So there's that, that's a huge piece of intention. It's our intention to walk through life without attachment. Slowly, slowly, slowly. Don't like it. it it's like, you know, you're not going to walk out of here tonight and go, oh, I'm not attached anymore. That's not going to happen. Um, but to reflect on that. When we suffer, where's the attachment? When there's the pretzel in our gut, where's the attachment? When there's the churning, where's the attachment? Really investigate discerning, using our, our mind to see clearly. Meditation supports that. When you're sitting on the cushion, you begin to see the mind and what it does and where you're caught in your stories. If you're, if you're, if you're 
if you're willing to do so, if you're making the effort. So, so the next, any, any questions, comments, thoughts, no, pronunciation? I, I like it now. It's a happy word in my vocabulary. It's not an awful word in my vocabulary because I've tasted the fruits of it. So I'm like, yes, more. Now I'm attached to renunciation, I know. <laughs> it never stops. Okay. So the next piece of intention is, is, um, is cultivating goodwill, which is an antidote to ill will. It's an antidote to aversion. It's an antidote to our um, inability to be with what is. It's an, an antidote to our pushing away stuff we don't want. And the Buddha says, in order to do that, we we go to the meta practice. We really um, uh, work at this unconditional feeling, wishing well for all beings, wishing well for all beings, unconditionally. Hard as that may see seem. Um, as impossible as that may be, it seems. Um, it's really, it's not about the other person. Again, it's about freeing ourselves. But in the, in the action of freeing ourselves, we make it safe for others to be around us. If we're turning towards all beings with this, coming from this place of ill will, and it kind of goes hand in hand with the next piece, which is um, being harmless, not causing harm, then we're really quite um, extraordinary people. We're extraordinary creatures in this world if we can show up in that way. It's, it's, it's challenging because we're all about making sure we're safe and, and we're in this place of reactivity. So this path is a path of slowly seeing where we're caught up, slowly seeing how we are reactive to things, how we're deeply conditioned and, and disentangling that conditioning bit by bit by bit. So if we can see where we're bringing ill will, like me and the Boston, Boston teams, primarily the Red Sox, and can I cultivate goodwill for them? Can I cultivate, I'm right now, I'm, I'm so sorry, this is so lame, but I'm really cultivating goodwill for the Dodgers. I really, it's a practice. <laughs> All 18 fucking innings last night, I was cultivating goodwill for the Dodgers. Um, because I don't want to be that person because I have friends who love them so much and I really, I'm like, it's let it be, let it be. I'm, I'm freer and, and it's easier. I remember a couple of years ago, I, God, I can't, I don't know where my twisted up, my upbringing, my, I grew up, you know, in this world of lack and not enough and, and desperately needing to do what I needed to do to have enough. And there, of course, as it says in this, that reading, there's never enough. There's never enough. So this constantly grabbing, grasping, 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 it, there's never enough. And, I, and um, I came from a place of this small world of, of it needs to be this way. This is the only way. I talked about last week in YSU that I had a pea brain. This is, this is the absolute, this is the, this is the, the way it is. And anything outside of that, it's like, it can't be right. It's dangerous. 
And not consciously, but that's how I showed up. And I'm thinking a few years ago, maybe, I don't know how many years ago, I have no interest in the Rose Parade. And so when I have no interest in things, I tend to be dismissive. I used to be dismissive. I'm not dismissive anymore, mostly. But I would be like, and I, you know, and I remember one time it rained on New Year's, New Year's morning, and all those poor people who'd been there all night got drenched, and I think they canceled the parade or whatever. And normally I would have been nerny, nerny. But for some reason I had this place of compassion, this, this cultivating this kindness, this wishing good for all beings and, and being touched by these people, uh, by the plight of these people. And so, again, it's one of these really stupid, silly, mundane examples, but if we're walking around with this flavor of judgment and this flavor of you are deserving, you are not deserving, we have to start paying attention because that's not coming from a place of, of goodwill and harmlessness. That's coming from a place of making sure I'm okay and looking out for self. It's coming from a place of lack, it's coming from a place of being shut down um, and repressing. And instead we want to recognize that there, it's not, we don't come from a place of lack. You know, it's, it's mudita, which is the practice of appreciative joy, means that other people get to have good fortune. It's not about us. It's about celebrating the good fortune of others. That's that cult, again, that cultivation of, of goodwill. And in here, it's all about the heart practices, actually. You know, the metta, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and then, and then equanimity, which is being in balance with everything. So if we can um, wish others to be free from suffering and wish others to have goodwill, there's a, it's, it's like we're wide open. We're wide open. It doesn't matter what happens because we have this intention. We've set this intention to be in this space of, of joy and happiness and goodness with others and for others. And so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens. So that being said, it doesn't, and I always have to say this, it doesn't mean that we accept injustice, we accept um, uh, evil, that we are okay with horrible things that happen, but we are able to hold them, we are able to touch our suffering, touch the, be touched by the suffering of others, perhaps have some empathy, and perhaps are able to move towards ending suffering. You know, that's part of uh, getting to that in wise action. You know, um, it's not just about not causing harm, but it's about ending suffering where we see it and saying, no, this is not okay. It's not about spiritual bypass. It's not about being a doormat. It's about actually being solid uh, in where we stand so that we could say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done um, while not causing harm at the same time. That's, that's the goal. That's the end point. And we move from the place of wherever we are. We move from 
you know, our own conditioning. We move from our own um, reactivity. We move from our own attachments and hopefully move forward slowly, slowly, um, just step by step. So, um, you know, and, and oh, there's the one thing that I, I love, uh, the quote that I, uh, I ab absolutely love around intention. Intention leads to deed. Deed leads to habit. Habit leads to character. And character leads to destiny. So our destiny is fed by our intention. Our, you know, mind follows mind. Our intention leads to how we act, leads to habits, leads to our character, leads to our destiny. So if we come from a place of wise, skillful, kind, loving intention, we're gonna, we're gonna act that way, we're gonna get develop those habits that's who our, what our character is going to be like, and that's kind of where we're going to move towards in our lives. So, yeah, as the Buddha said, whatever we reflect on frequently becomes the inclination of the mind. That's what, that's what it says right there. <laughs> whatever we reflect on frequently becomes the inclination of the mind. So. Um, any questions?